0: Let's pray together, church. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Father, as we come to your word this morning, we pray you would give us hearts of self-examination, that you would help us to consider ourselves, and Father, we pray we would never, ever treat the things of God lightly. And we wouldn't come to church because it's a, the cultural thing to do or because we feel like it's what we should or must do or anything like that, Father, we would come because we long... For more of you, we long to be united to your people. We long to grow an understanding of your scriptures and our obedience in faith. Father, I pray as we consider realities of judgment, of uh, yeah, of wrath for those opposed to you, that you would guard us, Father, from a flippancy as we handle these things. Father, I pray we would be found ready at Christ's return and that you would use just these meager words in this next few minutes, Father, to exalt your Son in our hearts and prepare us for his return. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I am now at one of my favorite stages of parenting, which involves me getting to read books I want to read anyway with my kids. Uh, So we're not at Tolkien yet. We're saving Tolkien for when they'll appreciate him, because the only thing worse than not reading Tolkien is reading him and not appreciating him. Uh, But we're currently reading, me and my two older boys, uh, The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or as my three-year-old calls it, The Lion, the Witch, and the Robot, Uh, which, I mean, sounds like a cool sci-fi spin-off. I mean, I I would read that. That sounds really cool. Um, But we're we're reading C.S. Lewis, and many of you are probably aware that Lewis is using his fiction writings to, to teach Christian truths. So uh, in each of the Chronicles of Narnia, but especially certainly in the line the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he's trying to show us things that are biblically true through the medium of story. And this past week, we read the passage where the children, the four children, uh, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy— hear the name of Aslan, the lion, for the first time. Aslan, uh, if you're familiar with the story or not familiar, he's the lion who's the king who represents Christ. In the whole story, he's he's the Christ figure. And when they hear his name for the first time, this is what it says. And now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. But the moment the beaver had spoken his name, everyone felt quite different. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump in its inside. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning... And realize that it is the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. I love that paragraph. Uh, and what you see in that little paragraph is these, each of the children having this reaction to Aslan's name. For three of them, they get this unexplained sense of wonder. They're just amazed. They hear the name of Aslan. They're like, oh my goodness, it's incredible. But for one, Edmund, it says he felt a, a sensation of mysterious horror. Already at this point in the story, sorry to spoil if you're not familiar, but Edmund uh, has been the traitor. He has allied himself with the White Witch. He's, He's entered into an alliance with this false queen of Narnia, and she's promised him that if he's on her side, he can be king of Narnia someday. And so the name of the true king of Aslan terrifies him. It gives him a sensation of mysterious Horror, And that is very much what we're going to find in our passage this morning. The coming of Christ inspires bravery and joy and wonder in the hearts of those who love him, in the hearts of his people, but horror in the hearts of his enemies. Those who want authority for themselves, who want to cling to their own power when the true king comes, the name of Jesus is one of mysterious Horror. So if you've been tracking with us through the Gospel of Matthew, we are now in the final week of Jesus' life. So the last eight chapters, roughly, of Matthew's Gospel are just one week. Jesus enters into Jerusalem, and he has, as we read about a couple weeks ago, he cleansed the temple, and he started engaging in conversations with the religious leaders there. This is a week that will end in the cross and the resurrection, but everything happening this week Holy Week, typically, is leading up to that, and so these Jewish religious leaders, they've seen what Jesus is doing, probably particularly the cleansing of the temple, and they don't like it, and they go to him, and they challenge his authority to do something like that. What gives you the right to come in our temple and flip tables around? What gives you the right to teach these people about the things of God? And so Jesus has been explaining, he's been answering them with a series of parables, and today we're looking at the second of three parables that he gives. And our passage begins with these words from Jesus. He says, hear another parable. And at this point in Matthew, we've seen enough parables that you're probably relatively familiar with how they work. But it's been kind of a while since we've seen one. And, and this one in particular that we're going to look at is a fairly complex Uh, parable. It's got a lot going on and it's it's fairly significant. So I just want to just take a a brief second and remind you how parables work. So it's not something we often use in our kind of modern vernacular. We talk about parables. It's it's very specific to Jesus typically when we talk about them. Uh, But the word parable comes from two Greek words, para and balo, and together they mean to put beside. So very simply, it's some kind of comparison. You're putting two things beside each other to, to illustrate something. So I think the, the definition I've given in the past is a parable is a provocative illustration. So it's an illustration. It's putting two things next to each other so we can compare, but it's, it's also meant to be provocative. It's, it's supposed to uh, provoke our minds. It's supposed to get us thinking, what is Jesus doing? Why did he use that particular metaphor? What is the point? So... That's how parables work. And to approach Jesus' parable this morning, we're actually going to look at it twice. So first, I'm going to run through the parable verse by verse, and we're going to kind of note all the details, what's going on in the parable. Uh, it's, this is different from our context, the parable about farmers and a vineyard and a master. And, you know, we live in McKinney, Texas, and so some of us might be like, what's going on here? Uh, so just to understand the parable, we'll go through it once. And then second we're going to go back through the parable and unpack what Jesus is doing with it the meaning behind the parable. And then uh, after the parable Jesus himself explains more of how that works. So that's our outline for this morning. Jesus begins the parable with some setup. Verse 33 he says, Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower And leased it to tenants and went into another country. All right, Jesus is giving us the setup, and and look at what he gives us. We have a master, we have a vineyard with a fence and a watchtower and a wine vat, uh, and we have some tenants. And just from that one verse, there's two things I want you to see Jesus is doing. There's two things his audience would have immediately recognized from the setup that he's giving. And the first, is that this vineyard is being given every possible chance of success? The vineyard's being given every possible chance of success. The master's not messing around. Uh, so for Christmas, uh, my older two boys uh, both got these little—I think from my mom or someone—these little bonsai tree starter kits. Uh, and basically what it is, it's a little box with everything you could possibly need for a successful bonsai tree. So it's got, you know, the seeds and the pots and the labels and pruning shears, which are terrifying in the hands of a three-year-old. Uh, we didn't know they were in there when he was playing with it, but it's okay, no one got injured. Uh, but it's got everything you could possibly need for success. You want to cultivate a healthy bonsai tree? This starter kit is, is the whole package, and that's what the master does here for his vineyard. He builds a fence around it, so that would have been to keep out wild animals or, or maybe thieves. He digs a wine press, so there's on-site fermentation and storage. You don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to you know, find someone else to do part, that part of the job for you. You can do it right there on site. He raises a watchtower, which is a protection against fire. There's a fire in the vineyard. You can see the whole thing from the watchtower. If there's robbers or marauders coming, you can be ready. It's, it's everything you need. And finally the master hires some tenants. Uh, Now, the word tenant might be a little misleading there. Uh, The Greek word just means farmers, but tenant is appropriate. They're they're hired farmers. It's kind of being leased out to them. They're hired to work and to keep the vineyard. So when you read tenants, don't just think of this as, you know, like a home rental today where you get to live there and you're supposed to not break things if you can help it. No, they're, they're hired to actually do things. They're hired to work this vineyard. They're sharecroppers who tend the vineyard and get most likely some percentage of the profits. And all this, as I said, adds up to a vineyard with every possible chance of success. You have all the stuff you need, all the ingredients for a successful vineyard. That's the first thing this verse shows us. The second is Jesus makes abundantly clear who the vineyard belongs to. He says it right at the start. There was a master who planted a vineyard. He owns it. He finances it. He did all the setup here. So the tenant farmers get there after everything else has been done. They didn't do the setup and the investment. It's all the master who did it. It's not their vineyard. It's his vineyard. He leaves on a journey at the end of this verse, but that doesn't change the fact that the vineyard belongs to him. He owns it. Verse 34. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. Okay, this would have been maybe four or five years later now. Vineyards, they take time. This would be the first crop, and it would most likely not be much. You don't really plant vineyards for yourself. You usually plant them for the next generation. So your kids can reap the benefits of all this work that you've put in. But notice again here. Jesus is going out of his way to make it abundantly clear who the vineyard belongs to. He, the master, sent his servants to, get the, to the tenants to get his fruit. I mean, he just uses the pronoun again and again and again. It's the master's vineyard. He sends the master's servants to get the master's fruit. Plain and simple, it belongs to him. Verse 35. The tenants took his servants and beat one killed another, and stoned another. As we'll see, this is round one. The master does what he should do. He sends his servants to get his fruit, and the tenants, the farmers there, respond with a cruel violence. They get actually creative with their wickedness. They don't just reject the master's claim, no, thank you, we're all right, we'll keep it for ourselves. They, they beat one, they kill one, and they stone another of the servants. It's an it's a intentional cruelty. It's not a crime of passion when you start getting creative with how you abuse someone. That's what we see happening with these tenants. There is an intentionality to their violence. It is cruel in the next verse, we have round two, verse 36. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. So again, same story, just, just worse this time. It's a violent response to a reasonable demand. It's his vineyard, he's entitled to the produce, but they, the tenants kill and attack his servants. And we might ask, well, what's happened? What's, what's gone on? Well, the parable doesn't tell us specifically, but we can, we can imagine that after you know, four to five years waiting for this first crop to come, the tenants have got comfortable. They're, they're starting to think, we do all the work. The master's been on vacation for years. I, I, this was dirt when we got here, and now it's produce. Surely this belongs to us. It's, it's our vineyard. We want it for ourselves. What's he ever done for it? And, of course, they weren't there when he, you know, got out a shovel and dug the wine press. They weren't there when he got out a hammer and made the fence. They've only, you know, they have barely seen him at all, and they want the vineyard for themselves, and so that's why they've responded with this violence. And at this point, the master is, is well within his rights to get together a posse and come and bring justice to these tenants. He was within his rights to do that after the first time they attacked his servants, but he sent more. This seems like a fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me kind of situation. I mean, what's, what's going on here? Surely he needs to punish them. But next, he actually does something else instead. Verse 37. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. So, in response to just gratuitous violence, the master displays an unimaginable patience. I mean, it's it's amazing. He he gives them one more shot. He sends his son, the one that they should respect, his premier representative. I mean, surely they if they treated his servants like that, surely they won't do that again. Short of the master himself coming back, this is the most personal involvement he could take in the problem. He doesn't get a posse together. He sends his son in one final, genuine attempt to just get what he's owed. And that brings us to round three, verse 38. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. So they displayed gratuitous violence. The master responded with unimaginable patience, and again they respond with an unbelievable atrocity. They see the sun walking down the road to the vineyard, and they think, this is our shot. We can finally make the vineyard ours. If we get rid of the sun, there's no more air, and it's ours. I'm not quite sure if they have really thought this through if they actually think that this will work. Uh, I, as I mentioned, you know, vineyards are for the next generation. That's why you plant one. But, I mean, I guess they think the master will be just so sad or so exhausted, he'll just give up on it. It's obviously not a rational thing they're doing. It's a foolish expectation. But whatever the reason, they do it. They throw him out of the vineyard and they kill the son. And then Jesus concludes the parable by breaking the fourth wall. So he actually looks up to his audience, to the Jewish leaders he's speaking to, and he asks them to finish the story. Verse 40, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? So he's asking them, what do you think is going to happen? And they, this is the Jewish religious leaders, they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death. And let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. So you can just hear it in their tone, in their words. The Jewish leaders are just disgusted at these tenants. He will put those wretches to a miserable death. And not only that, not only do they expect judgment, but they also expect the master will go and he will find some farmers, some tenants who will actually do their job who will do what the master expects them to do, who will give him the fruit that he is owed. So there's two things they're expecting, judgment and new tenants. And both of those hinge, as we see in the parable, both of those hinge on the one thing the wicked tenants didn't account for, the return of the master. He's coming They'd assumed he'd be on vacation forever, but Jesus says, when he comes. Not if he comes, when he comes. The master will return. So that's the parable. And the question next then is, what is Jesus doing? What's What's he showing us? What's his point? Well, quite simply, this is a parable about the past, present, and future of God's people. As Jesus is telling it, In the the first century, he's describing the past, present, and future of God's people. And that becomes abundantly clear from what Jesus says next in our passage, which we'll get to. But it's already clear when we recognize that Jesus is rewriting Isaiah chapter 5. Jesus is rewriting Isaiah chapter 5. If you've got a Bible in your hands, you're going to want to turn there. We'll have it on the screen. But just, just listen, take a look And what Isaiah chapter 5 says, it's, it's a lengthier passage, but I want you to just pay attention. See what Isaiah is saying 800 years before Jesus. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes But it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. That whole passage is crazy familiar if you just read Matthew chapter 21. Jesus is rewriting Isaiah chapter 5. We're not going to do all, go through all the details of it, but I'll just note some similarities, right? The vineyard is being given every chance of success. I mean, the Lord even says, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I haven't done? I mean, it was set up for success. This vineyard should have been great. And even some of the features are identical. There's a watchtower and a wine vat. We've seen those. And again, the vineyard very clearly belongs to the master. He did all the work to get it ready. And four times in just seven verses, he calls it my vineyard. It belongs to him. And again, at the end, when the result isn't what it ought to be, there is a judgment for the failure to produce the fruit the ma- at the master's return. But one of the kind of slight differences here in Isaiah chapter 5 is that the elements of the metaphor are identified for us. There in verse 7, you can see it. He, he just tells us, which is nice. The master is the Lord. The fruit he expects is righteousness. He says, I look for justice, but there's no justice. He's expecting righteousness, and the vineyard itself is the house of Israel. So the whole vineyard image is a metaphor for God's Old Testament people. Throughout the Old Testament, we actually consistently see this metaphor being used, a, a vine or a fig tree, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago, or just various kind of uh, agricultural images for God's people, and the vineyard is one of the main ones. So with, with Isaiah 5 in mind, as we go back through the parable we can reasonably assume that what Jesus is doing is reusing some of the same metaphorical aspects. So the master, obviously, is again God. The vineyard is again Israel, and the fruit he expects is again righteousness. So with that in mind, let's let's look back at Jesus' parable now. As I said, this is the past, the present, and the future of God's people. Verse 33, Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a winepress in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. The tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Those first four verses, what is Jesus doing this is the summary of God's people in the past. The first four verses, this is what this is Old Testament Israel, this is the summary of how things went. Very simply, in the Old Testament, God's people were given every possible chance of success. They had the wealth of the scriptures. They were given the promised land. They had the prophets. God set them up to succeed. And how did they respond? They acted like they owned the place. They made up their own rules. They ignored the, what God gave them and they ignored God Himself. They acted like He's away on a vacation, never coming back. We don't have to worry about it, we can do what we want. So what did God do? He sent his prophets. That's the servants in the parable who are sent to collect the fruit. Actually, it's interesting. There's the the first servants and then there says there were more sent. Some scholars think that might be the former prophets and the latter prophets, which there's more latter prophets. It doesn't spell that out specifically, but maybe it's possible. But God sent his prophets to call them to righteousness, to collect the fruit that he was owed. And just like in the parable, Israel responded to God's prophets with creative violence. Being called to be a prophet in the Old Testament was one of the most terrifying callings you could get. Uh, You guys remember the show Dirty Jobs? Is that kind of still in our collective consciousness, right? Discovery Channel, Mike Rowe. uh, And it's basically like, you know, be a shark suit tester. You know, like, we made this shark suit. Let's see if it works. Jump in the water and get a bunch of sharks to attack you, and we'll see if you survive. Like, it's basically like, that's the dirty jobs, right? That is what an Old Testament prophet was basically meant to do. Go tell all these people they're going to hate you. They're not going to listen, but go tell them what God demands of them, and then they'll probably kill you. See, for the most part, it wasn't even... The Assyrians are the obvious bad guy who was killing God's prophets. For the most part, it was the leaders of God's people. That's the consistent story of the Old Testament. And yet, and yet, one thing you can't miss when you read the Old Testament is that God, just like the master here, God was incredibly long-suffering. In response to gratuitous violence, he again and again displayed unimaginable patience. Not because they deserved it, not because their sin wasn't so bad, but because it's just who he is. He's a God who's patient, who loves his people and longs for them to walk in righteousness and isn't just going to, you know, zap them with a lightning bolt at the first time they mess up. We see that Exodus 34, God reveals himself to Moses, and this is how he just describes himself. He says, this is who I am, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God told them that in Exodus 34, and the entire rest of the Old Testament is God proving it. Again and again and again. He brings justice, yeah, He brings, Isaiah 5, He brings the exile. He takes them out of the land. But He is unbelievably long suffering and patient. That's who He is. And as Jesus is here speaking to Israel, He's in Jerusalem, He's in the capital city. He's giving them their own history, He's describing their own past, blessed in every way. Unbelievably wicked in response, and yet still cared for by a patient God. And then he moves to the present tense. And the heights of that patience are revealed in a way they have never been revealed before. Verse 37, finally, he sent his son to them. So, this is very clearly where Jesus diverges from Isaiah chapter 5 and introduces a new character to the story. This is where the parable shifts, as I said, from the past to the present because Jesus, the Son of God Himself, puts Himself in the parable. Here He is in Jerusalem. He's come to His Father's vineyard. And what do they do to Him? Verse 39, they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Did you notice the first time we read that how weirdly specific it is? They take him, throw him outside of the vineyard, and then they kill him. Why does Jesus go through that level of detail? Because that's what they will do to him. They will take him outside of Jerusalem and they will kill him. The Jewish leaders, in cooperation with the Romans, will take him outside of the city to crucify him. And the tenants plan, verse 38, they say, we see the son, we'll kill him, maybe we'll get his inheritance. As as we get towards the end of Matthew, the the trial scenes before the crucifixion, we're going to find that Jesus is killed, not because he's some rebel upstart. He's killed for being exactly who he is, for being the son And they don't like it. They reject him. He is the heir to God's kingdom. He's the true king and the Jewish leaders will kill him for that very reason. And they will declare, we have no king but Caesar. Their ultimate rejection of God. As Jesus tells the parable in the first century, that's the present reality for God's people. And verse 40 through 41 shows us the future. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes what will he do to those tenants? And they said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. It's, it's interesting there in verse 40, the, the word translated owner is, is a different word than how the master of the vineyard has been referred to throughout the whole parable. It was, he was just called a master, actually it was the owner of the home, is how it was referred to earlier. Here, it's the Greek word kurios, which is how the Old Testament translates the divine name Yahweh. So Jesus is pushing the limits of reality, or the limits between reality and the story. And he's, he's making it very clear who this master is. And that continues when he breaks the fourth wall, as I said, and invites the Jewish leaders themselves, the tenant farmers in the flesh, because they're the ones who have been the leaders of God's people, who have rejected the prophets. He invites them to pronounce the terms of their own destruction. They say he will put those wretches to a miserable death. That's the future. It's what's coming. The master will return, and that means two things. It means judgment. We'll get to that in a little bit. And it means a transfer of the lease. New tenants. God will give the care of his vineyard into the hands of those who will produce the fruits of righteousness. As Carl showed last week in our passage from last Sunday, membership in the kingdom of God is no longer going to be limited to those who come from the right background. You don't have to be like like Jewish You don't have to have the right family history. It will include tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and Gentiles who will but repent, believe, and serve this master. There there are new tenants coming in. Jesus is announcing big changes ahead for the vineyard for God's people. Judgment on their sin and a transfer of the lease. And then, in the passage, part of the passage we haven't gotten to yet, he actually begins to explain how this is going to happen. Verse 42. And Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So this is a quote from Psalm 118. But well, actually, before Jesus gives them the quote, he kind of mildly, not very mildly, insults his audience. He's speaking to the Jewish religious leaders, right, the Bible experts, and he's like, have you read in the Bible where it says this? I mean, it's like, it's almost like, LeBron, have you ever dribbled a basketball? It's this orange bouncy thing. Have you ever seen one of these before? I mean, it, it's, it's more than just a little slight but Jesus isn't just sliding them because he likes to, you know, own them because that's, that's the cool thing to do. No, he's actually, he's serving the very point he's going to make. They haven't paid attention to the scriptures. The very point he's making when he quotes Psalm 118 is that this future ahead, what he's promising is coming for God's people. It's not some unforeseen turn in the road. You should have seen this coming. This is how God has always acted and this is how he has promised To act again. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, I'm assuming most of you aren't in the masonry business, but the point of that line is, is fairly straightforward, right? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. God displays his glory by accomplishing his purposes in wildly unexpected ways. The stone, the the experts, right, the builders, cast aside. They look at the stone. This is a dumb stone. We don't need this stone. We're throwing it over here. We're not going to build with that stone. That's the one that God says, give me that stone. I'm going to build on that stone. And in fact, I'm going to make it the most foundational piece of the building, the cornerstone. That unexpected reversal is how God likes to work because it exalts his power and his wisdom and it shames the power and wisdom of the world. And we all love stories like that, right? I mean, it's, it's, we love those. The rags to riches, the epic turnaround, right? Apple computers started in a garage, right? Michael Jordan uh, didn't make his high school basketball team. Uh, or if you really want to be awesome in a nerd like me, uh, J.R. Tolkien, uh, who does he make the hero in The Lord of the Rings? It's not the big, powerful warriors, it's not the brilliant wizards who know everything. Who's the hero? It's this bumbling little gardener hobbit named Sam who no one pays attention to. Tolkien himself says Sam's the hero of this whole story. He's the hero of the whole trilogy. It's a shocking reversal of expectations. That's how God loves to work. And Jesus is saying, he's doing it again. He's doing it again. He's building something immense and grand and wonderful, but he's going to do it to the one who is rejected, despised, and cast aside. And obviously, he's speaking of himself. Jesus is the rejected stone, which God will raise up a mighty building upon the church of Christ, which today has stood for 2,000 years. It is continuing to advance in the world. And don't miss this, brothers and sisters this whole big Christianity thing got its start with a man whose body was broken and blood was shed on a cross 2,000 years ago. It all began with weakness and rejection. That is the stone on which God has raised his church and he continues, he continues to build his church in those same unexpected ways. Today, I sometimes feel we have a problem with God working this way. We don't actually think that's how he likes to work or how he has worked or how he will work. In American evangelicalism, we still gravitate toward what's what's impressive, what's powerful, what's popular, as as if the success of the church depends on just more NFL quarterbacks loving Jesus. That's not how God has designed most of these things to work That's not how he delights. Sure, does he save NFL quarterbacks? Yes, praise God. But realize this, Parkway, our faith was not founded on someone with just remarkable talent or popularity or or genius who made a brilliant discovery, something powerful in the eyes of the world. No, all the way down at the roots of the Christian religion, we find weakness and rejection. We find a cross and by God's grace an empty tomb. That's where it started, and that's how it keeps going. What the world counts as strength, big crowds, big budgets, not typically how God likes to work. No, He tends to work among the unimpressive and the cast aside because that, more than anything, displays His marvelous power. Our goal, church, our goal should never to be be to be great by some worldly standard, whatever it might be, whatever we might fit in that gap, some worldly measure of success or popularity or power. Our goal, should God have it for us, should be to simply embrace obscurity and rejection. And that's how he will design, desire to work in and through us. If it looks like weakness to the world, we praise God. Because that's how he likes to work. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay. Why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Remember, Jesus was the cornerstone because he was cast aside. Without the cross, there is no empty tomb. Our weakness is nothing but a chance to see God's strength. But the religious leaders, the powers that be, they rejected Jesus. And because of that rejection, Jesus promised them judgment. Verse 43. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, They perceived that he was speaking about them. Now notice what Jesus is doing here. He's speaking very directly to his own audience, these Jewish religious leaders. He says, you, it will be taken from you, you religious leaders, you wicked tenants, you builders who have rejected the cornerstone. The kingdom of God will be taken from you. The stone is the cornerstone of the kingdom, but it is also the mechanism of their condemnation. It's a stone for building, but it is also a stone for breaking. The cornerstone is also the crushing stone. Now, we're all, if you've been in the church for really any amount of time, we're all fairly familiar with the good news about Jesus, and we should be. Christ is grace for the wicked. He is a welcome for the outsider. That is glorious, wonderful news. But there's bad news too. The return of the master is bad news for the tenants. The new cornerstone is bad news for the builders who rejected it. What does Jesus mean for the humble and the faithful, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful things? But what does he mean for those who have rejected him in an effort to hold on to their own power like the Jewish religious leaders here? For them, he's not the cornerstone. He's the crushing stone. The kingdom will be taken from them and given to a people producing its fruit. And The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, this is what Edmund knew intuitively when he heard Aslan's name. He knew, this is bad news for me. This is bad news for me. He sided with the white witch. She's promised he'll reign in Narnia, so the return of the true king is terrifying. And this is a word of caution to all those who would lead God's people today. Later in Matthew, Jesus' condemnation, it will expand to all the Jews who reject him, but he starts as he always starts with the leadership. With those in authority. And I, I would just say, I feel this weight even as I stand up here and preach God's word to you. See, the Bible is clear, as Paul says in Ephesians, that those who preach the word, pastors, and teachers are gifts that God gives his people. But James also says, those who teach will be held to a higher standard, they will be judged with greater strictness. Hebrews says leaders will give an account for their people before God. Positions of authority in among Christ's people are hazardous. Look at the Old Testament prophets. And we see that clearly here with the religious leaders. Jesus starts his condemnation with them. See what was the tenants mistake? The farmers who had the vineyard leased out to them, what did they fail to remember? they failed to remember the vineyard was never theirs it was the master's vineyard if you've been a christian in america for again really any amount of time you've probably heard stories scandal pastors who have failed in some capacity whether a moral scandal or you know aggressive bullying leadership whatever it might be and I'm, I'm not in a position to, you know, give some kind of autopsy on any of those, what went wrong or anything. But, but there has to be, there has to be at the root, some part of it, where a pastor is always on the road to failure the second he starts thinking it's his church and not Christ's. Those in biblical authority are under shepherds to the good shepherd. When we forget that, things will always go sideways. There are some of you here who I know aspire to ministry. Some of you here who are serving in, whether in our church or in other parachurch ministries, who are serving God's people in some leadership capacity. Whatever it is, never, ever forget it's not your ministry, it's not your church, it's Christ's. This church is not mine, it's not Jared's, it's not the elders, it's Jesus' church. We have to always remember that. And I'll just, I'll just ask, brothers and sisters, that you would pray for your elders, for Jared, for myself, as we seek to care for and shepherd this church. It's a danger we could all fall into. We don't ever want to think we're above this danger. I'm grateful for the godly men I get to serve with here, but it is always a danger to serve in Christian leadership because there's always a danger of thinking this is my church my ministry and not Christ so we ask for your prayers Jesus makes that clear that he is the cornerstone and the crushing stone that the gospel is a message of both mercy and judgment but don't miss this one thing Jesus knows even as he's telling us this promising mercy for those who will follow him and judgment for these these wicked leaders, those who are clinging onto power for themselves, Jesus knows he has split those two purposes into his two comings. He knows the master has sent his son first for mercy before he comes back for vengeance. He has made a way so that instead of raining down in wrath, there is a path to life and forgiveness and a restoration to the master available. So our passage ends with a pretty ominous line, verse 46. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds, because they, the crowds, held him to be a prophet. And as Matthew continues over the next couple weeks and months as we move through the narrative, we'll find that it's things like what Jesus says here. Parables like the parable of the tenants that will ultimately result in them wanting to kill him. So the question we might ask is, is Jesus a fool? I mean, was he he just running his mouth, manifesting the very catastrophe he prophesies? Is that what he's doing? No. No, this is all part of the plan because Jesus knows he's the son who's come to be cast out and killed because none of us can claim to be the people producing the fruit that God demands and yet Christ will die in our place to give us his inheritance that's ultimately cs lewis's point in the line the witch in the wardrobe aslan he does bring vengeance on the witch there's a final battle coming in the end but not until he first dies for who for the traitor for edmund The one who wanted rule for himself, Aslan goes and he takes his place. And Jesus is the lion who became the lamb to die for those who would kill him. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. That's The gospel, that's what the Son came to do. So brothers and sisters, friends, as we await the return of the Master, never forget we have a pathway to mercy through the Son who has already come. He has made a way. He has died in our place. And if you've never walked that path, if you've never put your faith in this Jesus, maybe today's the day. Don't don't leave without talking to someone about that talking about what it means to follow this son who has laid down his life and been raised to give us the hope of eternity in a fellowship with the father of membership of inheritance in his vineyard let's pray god you are good and your word is good and we pray even as we Read some hard things, promises of judgment, of vengeance on the wicked. We pray we would take that soberly. We would also recognize the wonderful hope we have in the Son. That you're not just patient with us, but that you actually sent your Son to die in our place, to bear the wrath so that we might be one with you and have his inheritance through faith. Help us to look to the Son and joyfully, not in fear, but joyfully await the return of the Master. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.